place called Mount Capita um, in Narrabri up in northern New South, northwest New South Wales. And the idea basically was that, um, uh, you know, when you're dealing with international issues, um, a lot of people won't deal with all the different nation states because in Australia we've got 300, over 300 languages still spoken and that many nations. And um, so if you're trying to talk on, a, on an international level, uh, your, your problem is, you know, in, in, as in the case in Europe, you know, one state don't speak for the other. And so because we all have a common um, struggle here in Australia, then we need to bring, uni bring units together, nations together, so that um, they're speaking as one voice because they, and there's a lot more power in unity. And um, so that, that's the whole idea. And, and of course, the sovereign union is about, you know, sort of locating uh, a pathway to ensuring that they can decolonize within, uh, decolonize themselves on a personal level, and then look back towards their own cultural identity, their own national identity, and um, maintain their own linguistical identity as well. Uh, but at the same time, when it comes to a political move, you know they're they're united in a common in a common cause, and so that's the objective of the sovereign union. Yeah, nice one. So I guess um, as a sort of narrative for the interview, I'd like to start by uh, by maybe say if we were to go back three hundred years and and go on a bit of a trip around Australia, what, what sort of society would we find ourselves in? Well, you'd have a society that, um, A, controls its population because, you know, the Australia's one of the harshest lands in the world um, and Aboriginal people learnt to live with that because there were laws set down during the dreaming, during the creation period um, that, that set people's territories and uh, regions and so these, these people um, stayed within that network and stayed within their territories because uh, each nation were given their own identity and um, and so we all um, subscribe to not interfering with another person's and another group's um, territory because we know that there are limited resources and um, like I said at the beginning um, we had a system where we control population and controlling the population was determined by the weather patterns. And so, you know, if you're heading into long droughts, um, we had symbols and signs that we read nature. <coughs> nature tells us what's coming. And so we prepare for that. And, um, you know, there were regulatory processes in place in terms of controlling um, pregnancy with women. And um, um, we didn't have cows. You couldn't milk any animals. You know, it was pretty hard to put a baby in a kangaroo pouch and try and let him suck on the teeth. You know. mm, especially if it's an echidna. Yeah, uh, that's true. You, yeah. you try and get him in there or a wombat, you know. Yep. A bit of a rugged rugged lifestyle. Um, but n n nonetheless, you know, it's it's the fact is that we didn't have, you know, the cows and the camels and horses or sheep, goat that we could, that we could milk. So we had to stay within a very confined territory. Um, but that, that society also had, were very regulated by their own customs and traditions and there were laws in place and um, those laws were pretty well um, controlled and um, you, you stepped out of line, we didn't have prisons, you know, you, you, you did the wrong thing, mate, you were gone, you know. Um, and one of the worst things you could do is run away with another man's woman because they'll come after you and, they, and it takes two to tango so two get killed, not one. And um, you don't leave property behind, so you, you don't have to worry about courts and trying to work out some sort of 
you know, paternity arrangement or, or something like that, like you do in modern society. But we had a system of laws, a governance, and we had religion and we had ceremony um, the same way they have, you know, in modern society and how they adapted that, the, those ceremonial practices. But we maintained contact and we lived according to the rule of nature. We live with nature because that was we were intrinsically linked to nature through our totemic system. So we were family and uh, we had obligations to each other. Whether you're a tree, whether you're a plant, whether you're a shrub, whether you're a mosquito, whether you're a bee, it didn't matter. You had f obligations to those things and to each other. Yeah, so I guess you're describing a, a people who are really intricately linked in with the, the surroundings and, mm. and the environment. Um, how, how, I mean, you've described now how food was organised. How, how would you distribute the things that you did need? I mean, like you say, it's a reasonably property-free society, so that takes care of an awful lot of our law. I am. <laughs> like, I, I grew up... I grew up um Early days, you know, my granddad used to be, um, um, basically I called him a horse fisher because I used to sit and watch him as a six, seven, eight-year-old, um, watch how he used to deal with horses. And, you know, he used to always put me on the front of the horse on the saddle and we'd go bush, you know, he'd be a boundary rider, he'd go out and look at stock and that on these properties. And his power of observations, I recall, you know, because I picked it up myself, just, just things he taught me sitting on a horse. Um, as a young child, and I, I'd see him, he'd pull up and he'd stop the horse and he'd say, whoa, we're a stranger. And I'd be looking around the bush for someone in the bush. He'd be looking at the tracks on the ground. And I'd say, and he'd look down and he'd say, see that fellow there, look, and he'd be talking about, he, so he's talking it as if it's a person, but he's talking about a bird or he's talking about, you know, some, a goanna or maybe a snake, you know. And uh, you see these marks and he'd say, oh, we got a visitor coming. You know, or there's someone, someone's going to come and see, see us here. And uh, he'd, he'd be right every time. But the other thing he used to do, he'd go out without water in summer, you know, and he'd go out without food. And we used to ride around and, and he'd always ask me if I was hungry. And so all of a sudden he'd pull up against a tree and he'd pull a little thing off the tree, a little, is it what we call a snotty gaboo, you know, a little yeah, succulent yeah. thing on the, yeah. off a gum tree, and a eucalypt tree, and you'd get that, and he'd, he'd know what time and when to eat it, it'd be lovely, and you'd get a handful of them, you'd go along, and you get, you know, you're eating. Or he'd pull up, and he'd bend down, and he'd get something from the salt bush, he'd pull down and get some plants, and he, you'd be always eating out in the bush, you know, you, you there was always things to eat, that you were never, ever hungry, and then... And he used to pull up against trees. He used to cut a tree with a tomahawk. He'd just put a little mark in it or a, a knife, you know. And this would exude the gum, these these trees, the white wood and the, and the leopard wood. And so as we we're travelling, he'd, he'd go and he'd break off the gum and put it in his pocket. So when you were thirsty or when you wanted something, you'd just suck on the gum. And you, you, didn't, you didn't need water when you were eating that gum. So... You know, it, it, I, I learned a lot just by that, and there was a, the, so there was a system, a regulatory system in terms of um, understanding what's there. And uh, if you understood what was on that land, you never went hungry, you did, never went thirsty. It was there was always something there. And was there any attention paid to uh, to which plants were growing on the land? Like this is like walking through a supermarket. Absolutely, it was uh, it was a well maintained supermarket. Yeah, oh, absolutely. We it was natural. You see, um, you know, you didn't have to till the soil. It was, you know, it was all there. And um, and I I now even now, you know, non-Aboriginal people or Aboriginal people who come out with me for the first time in a car or 
go walk in the bush or something, um, they all, they always say, "Where's the water?" I say, "Well, if you want water, go and get water, but otherwise, don't worry about it." You know, <laughs> and I and I still do it. I, I still do it to this day. And I, I pull up and I show them what plants they can eat, what shrubs they can eat, and you know what fruit they can eat depending on the year. And um, and and a lot of people go away and they, they're just absolutely astonished. You know that, um, and they say, "You know, why don't you get this and market it? You can put this in a cafe and or a, or a you know supermarket." And I said, "No, no, no, no. <laughs> it is in the cafe. That's, that's better than cold, <laughs> here, mate. You know, you just walk around. You don't have to pay any money for it. <laughs> you know." Yeah, yeah, nice. Um, so, another thing, um, how would uh, an old society welcome strangers, like, say, lost and starving explorers? Yeah, kill them. <laughs> um, unfortunately, we didn't do enough of it. Um, and, um, but essentially, um, strangers are sort of, like... The, the yarns, and, and, it, and it's, it's quite interesting because when you read a lot of the references um, about white explorers sort of first contact with Aborigines or people who come later and had con contact with them after the first explorers, everyone talks about uh, the fact that um, the old Aboriginal people re regarded them as the spirits of their ancestors coming back, yeah, and bringing these strange things with them, like horses and camels or donkey or whatever they had with them, um, and so there's always this reference, whether it be whether it be Botany Bay um, when Cook and Philip first came and Sydney and J Port Jackson, Sydney Harbour, or whether it be out in the Pintabi when they first saw them, you know, in the deserts in the in the 60s, early 60s, 50s, 30s, in South Australia, they all talk about that. That white man, that person with white skin, there, red, reddy skin, white skin, the red, red, the man with the red hair and the and the um, and the red skin, um, you know, and a lot of lot of old Scots had that. Um, we went out there. Um, they were feared because um, you see, red eye people and red people are evil for us. But then the white one, as well, um, we call him Alien Bawanda, the evil white spirit. He's the boss of that underworld we call, we talk about, um, but and so because of that, <coughs> the, the the white skin represented the coming onto the surface of the earth um, by this by this spirit, and um, so we had to be cautious of it, and so people were always cautious about that, and I find that 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 um, uh, the the white um, representing the an underworld or an under an, um, an evil or a, or or a bad place uh, is pretty much right across the board in Australia with Aboriginal people, and uh, and we, we take it to a place up there near, near between Anglin and Evil, right on the Queensland New South Wales border, and you know in the upper western eastern upper upper western of New South Wales, and we'll take you there and we show you where you know the, where there was a big hole, a bilby hole, and and um, that's where we have a story about that Dane, the Aboriginal man, and and the Wedgetail Eagle. Um, falling in that hole and seeing this this thing down there, and then we got this great story about that. So, yeah, 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 nice one. Now, I know you've done an awful lot of research on on where the white fellows have come from over the years and mm -hmm. stuff. And what was England sort of doing at the same time in the 1700s? What was going on over there? Well, I reckon everybody else's countries. <laughs> they were they, like the English. Um, when you when you look at it. Um, they're a, they're a, they're a, on the one hand a mighty group of people um, because you know when you when you consider 
that little island um, after the Romans sort of disappeared and the Romans fell apart like the Aztecs. Um, but when, when, you, when you look at the, the power that England asserts around the world, um, they, they mastered the art of war. Um, this is, you know, this is something that, that's etched in the memory of many in historians. Um, and so you look at what they've done and, and how they sort of got control of Christian sort of things and, um, and how they competed with Rome. And, and for some reason, you know, the Christians of Rome were the only ones who were able to withstand the assault of the British. Um, but other than that, um, you know, they, they, they became a mighty force. Um, no matter what you, whether you like them or, or not, <laughs> the fact is that they, they're, they're quite influential people. Um, and the fact that they've retained the power of their monarchies, you know, through the ages, uh, they've adapted their, you know, their parliamentary system and their democracy, democratic system. Uh, they developed an economic base, um, which is, you know, second to none. Um, and so you've got to admire the, the you know, the, the, the brilliance uh, of their planning, their strate strategies and the way in which they organise their society. Um, but I, I think what we need to do is to look at the damage that they did around the world as well. Um, so there's, you know, so for a positive there's also a negative. And uh, the damage that they've done with us, for example, here, I, um, was quite devastating. But, but I must admit, um, that all the research that I've done in England and, and whatever I can dig up in Australia, they hide a lot of papers in Australia, by the way. Um, so you've got to go to England to see the real source of the information. Um, Australia has, in fact, corrupted everything in terms of... You go to this library over here and, and you know, all the, all the treasure trove of information is locked away in another area, and, but they've, got, they've, they've actually had, um, rewritten a lot of the documentation. And um, so when you go through the library, you find a lot of bodged up documents and, and it, it, they don't truly represent what was actually going on and what went on in terms of all the correspondence. So when you get to England, that's where you see all the original data uh, because it's not been corrupted. Um, mind you, I must admit that um, my last time in Kew Gardens, which was June this year, uh, the, the library centre over there, um, I found the Australian Constitution over there and then for some reason someone went into queue and cut a section of that Constitution out of, of, of the archival documents. I've got no idea why someone would do that, but they've done it. Um, and and the, I, I say, I talk about the corruption of these documents and all, the, all that history because what happened was Australia actually committed treason. All of the, the um, governors went beyond their commissions and they made proclamations and orders uh, that were, were not part of their commissions. N not only that, um, Australia was set up as a penal colony. <coughs> it was not not a civil society. It was a penal colony. <laughs> and so by the time Macquarie got here, Governor Macquarie, Macquarie was trying to run a penal colony, but at the same time, he was trying to liberate some of the good ones, you know, who come across here for stealing bread and all that sort of, you know, rubbish. And um, they sent him here because they had just didn't have enough prisons in England. Um, but they also sent him here, and this is a lot of Australians don't know this, but um, you see, they were shafting all the all the um, um, Irish and Scots who were objection, objecting to the British rule in their territories. Um, when they jailed them, they put them on the boats and they sent them to America. 
so they they they, they set up the first prison institution, prison institution, foreign one in the United States. And so these guys actually liberated themselves, and and we know what happened there. But um, in in Australia, um, they didn't. They, there was a rebellion uh, in Australia, and um, and so during this during the period, um, Australia was supposed to be settled. Um, I think it was 20 years before they actually came here. But the reason they didn't come here um, and start doing that was simply because, first of all, they had the American War of Independence, so it was the British versus the, the colonialists, Washington and so on. And so England was directing all their energy and forces to fighting that war. And so they put it on the back burner, because if you look at the original documents and the instructions to Philip, uh, those documents are 10 years older than what what they actually brought to Australia. So, and there was some, you know, there's a bit of a quibbling about um, wh whether those documents were in fact valid because they were ten years after the after the event. Um, but nonetheless, they used um, that that uh, those documents. The other thing was as well when once they started sending people here, then all of a sudden they ended up in the Napoleon Wars. So when you look at the history of Australia, you realise that Australian. Um, Pop, being populated by Britain was held up by, first of all, the American Civil War of Independence, and then secondly, the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, so England had to divert energy and money and resources to fighting Napoleon, good old Napoleon. Um, and then after all of that sort of settled down a little bit, they ended up bringing people here, and um, and then they, they directed Philip to come here. And, and of course, Philip, um, was tre he, he committed treason because he... He was ordered um, to conciliate affections of Aboriginal people and to live in amity with them, not to take control, not to make them citizens of subjects of Britain, but to live in amity with the people who were already here. They failed to do that. The other thing that they failed to do when they came, <coughs> which is a which is a um, an, an, an English requirement under English under and international law as well. You see, when you step off those boats. To take possession of someone's land or come to someone's land, they were, you know, the, the Aboriginal people. You'll see all those, you know, drawings and pictures depicting Aboriginal people throwing spears at them, but they're firing guns at them. Okay, so they were not welcomed onto the land. Normally, when when you have a military force coming onto someone's foreign land or coming into their territories, they would be met by the by the opposition, by the people, and those people would ask them what it, what is their intention, why are they coming here. Um, and then you either get accepted and asked to come or you're being given refuge to sort of, you know, make a place, feed your people and get water and go, go on your way. That didn't happen in Australia. What happened um, um, was when, and it's all, this is all very much documented in the journals of those who were present at the time, um, where Philip, knowing that he had an obligation to do this, he actually put a, put a, um, uh, put a board... Uh, on ground <coughs> and disembarked um, in a little little skiff or a little boat, convicts. So he put them onto the soil, and then he he before he came off the boat, <laughs> and then he he sent them into the bush. And so then the, when they came ashore, the convicts came and met them, and asked them what their intentions were. That's how they occupied this land illegally. Absolutely. And we, we've now got all the documentation of, uh, of how they did that. You can't go onto other people's land. And that's why they said to Cook, you have to, 
you know, take the land with the consent of the natives. And in all of Cook's journals is that, you know, he left beads on the beach when he met people, he fired at them, he actually shot one. Um, and so when he went back, it's recorded in, in the diaries of Cook's uh, vessel that when they went back, they found the shield, the spears, and the beads and the trinkets that they left beyond on the beach. So the people didn't take them. So there was, no, there was an offer of a contract, but the people didn't accept that contract. And so he picked up the beads and took them back on, on board and went to, the, went to the other places. And not one Aboriginal person along the coastline where they stopped, there's all the evidence shows that they actually picked up the beads and trinkets. So there was no contract. There was no, no contract whatsoever. And so when you look at all this here, you realise that Australia... Um, was invaded. That's the that's the only term, and that's why we went after those documents to look at those processes, so that we make sure that we can definitively argue that Australia was invaded as opposed to a peaceful settlement. Yeah. So, what what are the English got going on in their minds? This sounds like an inherently bodgy contract. I'm going to go sail somewhere and leave a few beads on the beach, yeah. and if they pick them up, I've got them. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, right. So this is all written out in English law? Yeah, ab- and absolutely. E- everything's in, in English law. Mm. And that's why, you know, we argue. And, and like, it, it's one thing to argue that, you know, Australia's illegally occupied and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, you see, you've got to create, you've got to get the foundation. You, you have to be able to find the legal, you know, what the legal position was at the time, not now, you know, because um, everything's so corrupted now you, you can't tell the truth from lies. Um, but the fact is that um, we we found all the all the laws. In fact, it, when you look at all the instructions, they violated every instruction that was ever given to them um, here in Australia. And so, when you when you get down to the nitty gritty, everything that happened in this country here by the governors, by the first legislatures that were set up, uh, the laws, the conditions of of establishing those governments, everything's been violated. And um, and. In law, basically, that when you do that against an, an order by the crown, by the king or queen, um, in the case of King George III and Queen Victoria in particular, because they took particular interest in this country at that time, um, you find that all their governors and and their their administrators just completely ignored the instructions in relation to their relationship with Aboriginal people. Yeah, right. So the governors were sent out. I mean. Obviously, the, the the queen is. Let's just explain sovereign first. What 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 does sovereign mean? Well, basically, well, sovereign has, has many meanings. It depends on you know the context in which you use it. Um, but in terms of statehood, um, sovereignty is um, you know the laws and the limitations of your of your right to govern, and so the laws that are established. So you work within the parameters of those laws, and and so you've got a you've got a group of people who make decisions about society, society makes its own rules, and so you're limited by those rules. So you stay within the, you know, within the parameters of those rules that are set down. Now, um, of course, as, as time change, as things adapt, and people have to adapt over, the, over years, um, life circumstances do change. And so the people who are governing, and the, if, it's a, if it's a consensus, you know, in a, in a, in a sort of a, a pagan society, those people who live on the land and live with the land, um, if these people live within nature, then 
they're exercising a sovereign right to occupy their lands in accordance with the rules that they set down. And so, they, and, and so you don't go outside of that. When you begin to go outside of those rules, um, that's when the, the govern, government or the people who make those decisions then start saying, okay, what's our rule on this here? What do we do in, this, in these circumstances? And so, so those who are governing are the ones who make those decisions. And that's so that you're exercising a sovereign right. And uh, that's, that's um, and so you get your consent through consensus, um, and uh, people that people talk about it, and um, and so sovereignty is like that. There in 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 modern society, of course, we we have a di we have a different set of um, circumstances because we have trade relationships now. Um, so you see certain you know aspects of your sovereignty in terms of dealing with some other country because some other country now has an interest in you. Um, it, Corporations, when corporations come here, you see certain sovereignty about uh, sovereign rights of the government because now you've given them the right to extract, um, you know, oil or gas or, or, or coal or gold, whatever it is. And so, uh, so you've given them a carte blanche operation to do that there. The only thing you're asking in return is, you know, is for taxes. And so they then make their own rules about how they extract what they do in terms of the land. You, the, the government actually loses control over that land that they give to them to you know to those extractive industries, and so you're you're transferring a certain amount of your sovereign rights to those people because they end up making the rules for themselves, and they regulate themselves on and within that land. It's the same as farmers, same as irrigators. You lease land to them, you give them land, or you sell land to them. You give them a license to go out there and take water. You give them a license to do certain things. Now, what you've done is you've transferred certain sovereign authority and sovereign power over that there. But you try and regulate it by, by the codes of law that you you know get within Parliament. But when you've got you know these people with so much money that they can buy a seat for a member for a friend of theirs into a Parliament, right? Then that par that parliamentarian is going to be looking after their interests because he wants to. He's not going to go in there for three years and then get himself kicked out. He's going in there for a lifetime and a pension. Right and and probably a seat on the on their governing councils or um, have it becoming a you know vice president or a president of that corporation later on when he finishes parliament. So you, you know we, we've got a very corrupt system now as a consequence of um, um, economics and that's what. So you've transferred a lot of sovereign authority to corporations. Yeah, well I was actually I stumbled across this big list of. of, of companies and it's from starts in the 1400s and, and runs right up until the 1880s and mm -hmm. you got the morocco company the spanish company the the east india company the hudson's bay company yeah, yeah. so these are all corporations yes. who are in a, a mutually beneficial relationship with the sovereign mm -hmm. to go overseas and and plunder that's great all the natural resources yeah including yeah. the people that's great yeah. Well, they just move them out of the road, they become vermin. Well, or they become slaves. Slaving, I think, was outlawed in 1807 in England. Yeah, well, that, that, that's interesting um, because that was, you know, during Queen Victoria's reign. And, um, and it's, it's uh, when, you, when you look at the history, it, in fact, the, uh, the fellow who played the leading role was not necessarily Queen Victoria. But her husband, he, he was he was a humanitarian. He was a, and when you look at what what that man did, actually, in um, as the husband of Queen Victoria, he was your first cousin, by the way. Um, so they were, you know, pretty inbred them mob. Well, that's right. Um, <laughs> um, but he was a Coburg, so he, he you know he, he was German, 
right? And um, and if you look at uh, modern England now, you find that um, yeah, Germany has a very big stake in in the aristocracy of England. Yeah, well, all, all the Georges through the seventeen hundreds, they were all from Hanover. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, so so a lot of people don't realise how much impact. Germany has and how much influence uh, the German aristocracy has on the British crown. Um, but you're right, in terms of those big corporations, they came out here and they set those companies up, And um, but they were owned by the state. They, they, were, they were part of the state, and um, so they were plundering everything they could to create the wealth, and that's what it was about. It was generating as much wealth as they could for the state. Yeah, so I guess the, the laws of England of the time and of now are really... Who are they created by, and, and what are they really for? What's what's the purpose of all this? Well, you know, I, I, I looked at um, the time that I'd spent in England looking at the evolution of their common law system. Uh, interestingly enough, their common law system uh, evolves out of heraldry law, uh, the law of heraldry. And if you look at the law of heraldry, it's about totemic, totemism. Yeah, and so within that totemic area, if you go back to England to that those medieval times, pre-medieval times you'll find that they lived in clan groups all over Britain. There were Britons, there were Saxons, there was Normans, and you know, and then Angles. you had the Scots, you had the Angles, and then you had the Welsh, etc. Now, all these people lived in little areas, and, and, and if you look, go and have a look at their heraldry law, just like us, you know, you go to those persons, even in France and Germany, these clan groups, these family groups, all had a heraldry system. And they were attached to land. And then if you look at that land, there was an animal that was on that land, or a bird, or a plant, yeah? And when you look at the heraldry system, you will see that plant. So is this like the coat of arms? It's like a coat of arms. Yep. It's, it's all there in the coat of arms. And so so the common law right evolved out of those, those people having certain rights on their land. And so that's why they call it a common law, because it's, it's common to everybody. And, that, and, and so it came down through the heraldry law. And so when you look at that heraldry law, you still have in England, by the way, a court of chivalry, right, which, which can be summoned um, to make determinations about the rights of those persons on their lands, and the heraldry that they have associated with that law through the totemic system. In Australia, we, are, we Aboriginal people have the same. Like, I was amazed. Uh, there's a story, if I can just tell you this little one, because it's an important one for me. Um, my grandma, um, she, her dad was a, um, her, her dad was a um, uh, Scotsman, yeah? And uh, she was telling me how... Now, the story is that the old people said that old, old Charlie Kennedy there, he wanted, he wanted that black girl in that camp. He, there's no way in the world you're going to get rid of him. So the old fellas told him, no, you can't have that Aboriginal woman because you're only going to have half a baby. And everybody's sort of thinking, what's a half a baby? <laughs> right? And so it worked out that the half a child meant that the mother gave, the totem ex gave her totem and her connection to country to that child, but because that white fella didn't have a totem system that they understood, well, then that child wouldn't have any connection on his father's side to any country or to any place or any animal or bird or plant. And so you couldn't. So that's, that's a half child, yeah. So my great-uncle told me they put him through ceremony in our law because he was just a persistent bugger. You know, the Scots are pretty... Pretty hard. <laughs> they got a history of this, but anyway, he um, um, then they put him through ceremony, and they gave him the gudu marikot, 
as his totem in the ceremony. I went to Scotland in 1983, and I went looking for this heraldry law and found out where Charlie Kennedy's mob come from. Yeah. And then I find out that his crest was the dolphin. And I thought, now that's smart. Now that's very clever. Yeah. So they picked him. Yeah, they picked who he was in, in that ceremony, and they gave him the guru, but he, he was actually that thing. So he was a right person for that old woman in the end under our law. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, so so that, that's the sort of stuff we need to look at. And, and here in Australia, um, people don't look at that yet, and they haven't really focused their energies on that. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> so um, the Sovereign Union, um, coming back to that, yeah. What's the what's the sort of the need for it to to, to happen now? Because I guess a little bit. Yeah, go on. So with with the sovereign union, what we're doing is we're driving it as an organisation that um, articulates the people's rights. Right? Because if you if you don't know what your rights are, well then you know you you you're firing blanks into the sky, yeah, and a dark sky at that. Yeah, so <laughs> so you're going to miss everything, yeah, and um, and then when daylight comes, and there's a different world, yeah, that you think you you're in. So in order to establish um, a, a pathway forward, the people must understand what their rights are, what their human rights are, what their rights are as sovereign people. They've in, they have an inherent right to this land. Um, they have connection to this country through their law and custom. And of course, Mabo, the High Court of Australia, recognises that now, and it's, part of, it's now recognised by the common, league, common law system. So now what we have to do is look at, okay, well then, did the British at any time make you a citizen? If so, when and how? All the evidence shows that Aboriginal people are not citizens of this country. They're all aliens. All the early laws right up to the 30s, 40s, 50s, and, and right through to 1967, they were not considered human. Yeah? The only effect that the 67 referendum had was that it gave the right to be counted in the census. It did not give the Australian government rights to pass laws for Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. No, it didn't. It gave them the right to pass laws for any race for whom it was deemed necessary. And as M Menzies said in 1965, in the lead-up to this discussion and the, and the referendum of 67, Menzies said, you take the word Aboriginal out of the Constitution, yeah, um, we don't, they, they go outside the legal system because they are an alien race to this system. Now, Everybody says, oh, but, you know, they, they were to be treated as, um, as citizens. That may be so, to be treated as a citizen, right? But we weren't. We, we, were, we were wards of the state. We were under protection, so we were protected people. And we were refugees in, in, off our land and on other people's lands. And this is admitted in the New South Wales Parliament in 1946 that, that's, that that was a fact. Now, what we have then is, is now... We're, we're sitting here, and those Aboriginal people sitting in Parliament, by the way, do not have a legal right to sit there, yeah, national or state, local government, because they're not citizens, yeah. And so if you go to um, Linda Burney or you go to Pat Dodson and you say, how did your people become citizens? Show me where you became citizens, yeah, legally, okay. You go back through the paperwork, you will find that they were all wards of state. Their ancestors, their parents, and their grandparents were wards of state. Now, as a ward of state, when did they get free? There's no paperwork that says that they were free people. None. They just, all they did was alter the legislation that allowed them out of the prison to walk freely. 
within society and participate in society. There were some laws where under that under the legislation under those protection laws in the states you could get an exemption certificate so you don't have a passport so they would exempt you from those laws and you had to carry that little dog tag we used to call it right and you had to carry that with you all the time now that gave you franchise that that actually gave you legal franchise that document under their law and so once you got that franchise you could vote in their election but if you didn't have that franchise well, then you didn't have a right to vote, yeah? And so Aboriginal people who were never given that franchise do not have a legal right to vote in this country. Um, and they should not be in Parliament. They, they, it's, it's illegal for them to be there. Now, no one's saying anything because they want to shut it up. Yeah, They're, they're not going to deal with this. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a key issue. Now, when they said that the Queen told them that they had to treat us and protect us and give up, pr offer us the protection of English law, not we were not subjects of England, the only way you could become a subject of England at the time was that the king or queen would issue you or your family with the denizen papers. And so they'd issue letters patent. And those letters patent would go for each family making you what they call a denizen. And that means you become a subject. That was never done with Aboriginal people in this country. Yeah. And so that there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of questions about that. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna run in crashing into the yeah, end of the show I'm, pretty I'm soon. Looking at the clock there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what what are the pros and cons of being a citizen? If, if as you are, you're a, a group who's trying to claw back your sovereignty mm. from mm. a colonial power. Well, we we it, it's not a bad you know a lot of people have got this misconception about the fact that they got to give us back our power, give us back our sovereignty. That's not how it is. You're either sovereign or you're not. Right? And so you apply your own rules and you start start saying, well, okay, Mabo recognised that our law and custom survived, yeah? And the worst thing is for the white Australians right now is that um, you've got a situation where the parliament have radical title over land, that is your state parliaments, right? Mabo recognises that. They have radical title. But then in the next breath they say they do not have beneficial radical title and a low deal title. They don't have that. And so when they're passing these laws about land laws, they should be doing it in consultation with the traditional owners because they don't have beneficial title. Yeah. And so if you look at the word beneficial, well, we, I think we all understand who went to school and understand English and maybe can read a dictionary from time to time. <laughs> right? We know that beneficial, when you put that in front of radical, then beneficial gives them some responsibility, some ability to be able to do things. But the government, but the High Court of Australia said no, they did not gain a beneficial title. So governments who are making laws about land are in fact in breach of the High Court ruling. And so Aboriginal people haven't taken that up yet. Yeah, right, right. So if you were to be somehow included into the Constitution and, and be given the rights of citizenship, would that make your job harder? It would. I, I wouldn't accept it anyway. My mob, my mob would just say, mate, that constitution for your white fellas, you, you leave that one. But if you're prepared to wipe that one out and throw it in the toilet, yeah, and use it for what it's really worth, um, then <laughs> we will we will negotiate with a, a treaty pact and we will integrate into a program on our on terms and conditions that are amicable to each other, that we come to a satisfactory set of negotiations uh, for going forward as a, as a, as a people. And, um, but to be forced into, the, into this existing Australian constitution, which sets up an autocratic rule in this country, it's not democratic. 
you know if you understand politics and you ever studied politics um, then you will understand that this Australian constitution sets up an autocratic rule and the powers of a prime minister does not exist in the Australian constitution so he's exercising authority that he doesn't really have yeah I guess it all goes back to the Queen being appointed by God doesn't it Absolutely. Well, she made herself. Well, they. Oh, oh what's, what's his name? Um, um, that fellow that. Um, George, Henry, probably. No, Henry VIII, eh? Um, that fellow with all them wives. And oh, yeah, yep. Yeah, well, he, didn't, he, he wanted to marry as many women as he wanted, so the Catholic wouldn't do it, so he created his own church and said, <laughs> I'm, I talked to God and God told me to do this. Ah, uh, yes. Strange people. Yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely. So, how could. Uh, say, say this treaty somehow came apart yeah. uh, came about and yeah. what, what would it sort of what would it look like ideally in, in your sort of well, I, visioning I was the research director for the NAC National Aboriginal Conference back in an elected Aboriginal body of people um, back in 1981 to 84 and um, and we we developed a national framework because Malcolm Fraser agreed to negotiate a treaty under under his government but poor old Malcolm Fraser is coming under a bit of bit of hammering right now for letting Lebanese into the country. Um, so, you know, I wonder when they're going to say he shouldn't have started negotiating with Aborigines on a treaty. Um, but he did, and um, and what we did, we developed this national framework, and it worked out that um, uh, because we have many tribes, many nations in this country, it's not possible to have a single treaty um, that represents the whole of the Aboriginal state. We can develop a national framework which sets the bars in terms of, you know, certain rights, human rights and uh, indigenous rights, Aboriginal rights based on international uh, legal norms right now that have been ne successfully negotiated in the UN. Um, so you could use that as the foundation um, for negotiations and that these things have been written in and we treaty uh, based on that. So you wouldn't go below those rights. You would negotiate. But every nation would have to define their own territories, um, come together and negotiate their own treaty because they would have to um, negotiate what meets their needs and priorities as a people within their own right. You can't, there's no one shoe size fit all here. Mm, so pretty much a decentralising of the power. Oh yeah, and decolonising decolonizing Australia. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? No, I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity to have a bit of a yarn. Yeah, and, good, um, good. get it out there. And well, maybe well, welcome any time. <laughs> when I ask you, when I first come in, how many listeners are there? Maybe all you fellows should ring up and tell us, tell these fellows how many people are listening. Yeah, that's a good idea. Good yeah. plan, good plan. Give us yeah. a bell. Uh, 6230100 is the office. 6247 is the yeah. studio. But you'll have to wait for us to stop gas bagging before yeah. we'll answer the phone. Yeah, but you, you, yeah, but you know, you like us Aboriginals. You're that poor mate. You got no one to go out there and do any surveys for you. <laughs> That's true. Okay. They, they, they keep the well informed <laughs> down. <laughs> Killer, thank you very much. You're welcome.